Welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician. I'm a CMIO and the host of CMIO Podcast. And today I'm bringing you Dave Lair, who is the CIO at Luminous Health, which is in Anne Arundel, Maryland, so not too far from me. And we're going to be talking about some cool questions that I get asked as a CMIO from my physician colleagues who come up to me and ask me things that are kind of security related. And I needed a CIO to help me out. So Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So Dave, first, let's just get to know you a little bit. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are and where you're going. Yeah, so as you mentioned, I'm the CIO at Luminous Health, which is a new company in Maryland. We're a new health system that was formed when Anne Arundel Medical Center and Doctors Community Medical Center came together about a year ago. So I've been doing that. I've been with the company for about five years, um, the CIO for three and a half of those years. And now I'm transitioning into a new role, starting my own company, helping organizations turn around their analytics programs. So is that healthcare organizations or any organization? Uh, healthcare focus. That's been my sweet spot, actually. Most of my career, I came up through the healthcare analytics space, starting at Epic and uh, continuing on to consult with other organizations who were building and improving their analytics programs. And I actually came to Andrew Arnold Medical Center as a consultant charged with doing just that. They felt they were struggling with analytics and needed somebody who could come in and build a strong program. I think we were pretty successful. And so what I'd like to do and what I'm working on is taking the secrets to success that we built there and helping other organizations reproduce exactly that. I don't know if you're going to find any market, though, because healthcare is so good at analytics. This is just like our... (laughs) Wait, wait, no, that's not true at all. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. So that's a great opportunity and desperately needed. Uh, Every organization I've been with or spoken to is trying to improve their analytics program. So awesome that you're heading that way. Yeah, I'm excited about it. All right. So I get asked questions as a CMIO all the time from the docs, and I need a CIO's help with them. So I'm going to tell you the questions that I'm getting asked, and you're going to help me answer them. Here we go. You'll just shoot back what you think you would say to this provider who's sitting in front of you. So here's what they ask me. A radiologist comes up to me and says, hey, in the area of the hospital that I work at, the public doesn't go there, but my computer, it locks down after eight minutes of use. Why is that? Why can't I leave it open all day? What do you think? Yeah, so that's a tricky one. And endpoint security It's a pretty tricky thing to manage in general. So of course you always want there to be a really specific reason that applies to every individual device. But the truth of the matter is that just managing thousands and thousands and thousands of computers, each in different types of spaces with different types of security, sometimes you have to paint with a bit of a broad brush. And while you may have computer locked away behind two sets of biometric metric security doors or whatever it may be. And you're really, really confident that nobody is going to be snooping on that computer. Just managing all those one-off situations is sometimes not 
logistically feasible. So even in the case where it truly, truly is secured physically, we have to rely on technical controls as well. And even just regulatory organizations are going to be looking for that. If you look at the HIPAA rule, it not only requires physical controls, but it requires the physical and technical controls working in tandem together. So both of those things are at play, regulatory reasons and logistical reasons. And then of course, there's just the truth of the matter is that even when something is physically secure, you have to manage the endpoint security as well. Even in those places that only you need a badge or something to access, there's a cleaning crew that comes through or whatever it may be. And we just have the obligation both to our patients and to our regulators to protect their data. And those are unfortunately the measures that everybody expects. Um, So unfortunately, in that it requires a little bit of inconvenience, but fortunately, because as a patient myself, I certainly am glad that there's measures taken across the industry that uh, protect my privacy. So the radiologist is going to say, oh, come on, Dave, it's me. I'm your radiology buddy here. How about instead of eight minutes, can we go to 45? What do you think? And they start the negotiations. (laughs) Yeah. And that's where I say the logistics just really become a problem because you can't have it be 45 minutes in the ED hallway. And you maybe could have it be greater than eight minutes in the ICU because there's not a ton of traffic there, especially now with COVID. So maybe you could get away with 20 minutes in that hallway and in an ambulatory environment, really nobody's going unescorted anywhere. And it just becomes a logistical nightmare and everything is truly possible if you throw enough money at it. But I don't think that that's the best way for us to spend our money as a health system dedicated to improving the care of the people in the community. I don't think the community would want us to spend our money on managing that level of complexity. Awesome. So my fellow CMIOs out there, I'm trying to arm you with the good answers for when the docs come up to you. I know you guys get these things too. So that was a great answer. Thanks, Dave. All right, let's go to another one here. So now I'm the on-call surgeon and I need to be able to get into the EMR quickly when I'm at home and I get a call and the nurse is asking me for something. Why do we have to go through this annoying, secure, remote access thing? Why why can't I just pop onto my computer just like I do in the hospital and boom, there's the EMR right there for me? Well, so the unfortunate answer in a lot of ways is that whether it's healthcare or whether you're just anybody with an IP address that's publicly exposed, as soon as your IP address pops up for two minutes, there's going to be about a million and a half robots from all across the world trying to hack into that box and figure out what it is and if there's any vulnerabilities it can take advantage of to figure out what's inside and see if it's valuable. So you've heard about attack after attack, especially since COVID sent a lot of folks to have to work at home. The number of cybersecurity attacks went up considerably and they actually started working in earnest in a way that we hadn't seen before on trying to infect people's home computers because increasingly people were connecting their home computers into their work network. So the hackers realized what the company isn't managing these laptops that people bought at Walmart and now they've got the VPN software on there to connect them directly in. 
And they started taking advantage of that. So for us in particular, the way that we run this at our hospital is we started completely clamping down on VPN and sending people through, in our case, Citrix to launch the screen without necessarily connecting their home computer into the hospital network just because it's becoming an absolutely monumental task to keep people out of harming your network and ransoming your data or just stealing it and selling it on the black market. So if I understand the strategies, if it's a company-supplied laptop, you're able to have the security on that, the password protection, the two-factor authentication tools that we need, and the uh, antivirus stuff that is running at, at all hours. Versus someone's home machine, you have no control over that, so you have a different strategy for them. They have to go through the securitist route of getting in, plus the two-factor authentication as well that's still there. Is that the right way this works? That's how we have it, and actually, even the, the company computers... I'm increasingly saying, why do we even want to trust those? If we can get this to work without a ton of inconvenience or ideally without any inconvenience in a way that would just launch the applications and allow you to see them and interact with them without being on our corporate network through two-factor authentication or service, that's preferable because even though we put a lot of time and effort into controlling the security of the endpoints that we own, it's not 100% foolproof. So uh, yes, <laughs> the short answer to that uh -huh. question is absolutely. For the corporate-owned laptops that we manage and control and make sure they're patched every time Microsoft pushes a new update and all those things, we at least trust those enough in many cases to allow them onto the VPN. But even then, we try to limit it because the more pinholes we have of people coming in from who knows where, the less secure we can really be. So how come my office as the surgeon here can't have a VPN to the hospital? We spend all day on the phone with you guys for pre-op paperwork. Uh, we could just, we should, every office should have a VPN to you guys, right? That's easy. Yeah, so we actually started out on that path way back when, and we set a precedent that uh, a lot of our partners would get VPNs into our hospital, and that was I don't know if I'd say it was pre-CRISP, but it was before CRISP was nearly as mature as it is today. And that's our, for folks who aren't from the region, CRISP is our regional health information exchange. And they're really uh, sort of a national case study in how to do HIE the right way. So we started down that path. We started out as a much smaller organization as well. But as we grew, keeping up with that became really untenable. And as the HIE mature, uh, it became really unnecessary. So now what we tell everybody is that you can connect to one place. So if you're a practice, maybe you work with three hospitals. Why connect to all three when you can just connect to CRISP? And for us, we have three hospitals, two men's surge hospitals and a mental health hospital. We don't have to connect to 400 practices throughout the state. We really just hope that we can connect to CRISP, who has the connections from the practice. And that's really good because it's not just practice to hospital exchange, it's practice to practice exchange. So if you're maybe a cardiologist who works with primary care doctors from five or 10 different internal medicine practices in your area, you'll get their data as well, assuming everybody does the one simple thing. Simple is a relative term, but 
does the one connection, we'll all be better off. Okay, so interoperability is a problem, it sounds like, and that does hinder us. And those HIEs are very important, it sounds like, to really overcoming that obstacle, because I don't think any one health system can solve this. So, Exactly. Although in Maryland, I'll tell you, we've got a great head start, and I think it's a good example for how to do this across the country. And I always tell my counterparts uh, who say, how are you running your clinically integrated network where we have... Uh, north of 750 physicians, 60% of whom are not on our EMR, mm. all collaborating. And they say, well, how are you doing that? Well, and we show them what we're doing with the HIE and they almost always say, well, that's practically cheating. Uh, we, don't have a, we don't have a good HIE. And I said, well, you're leaders in your state, get it together. <laughs> Yeah, it does make a huge difference. Although we don't get the data into our EHR, which we tend to like as as clinicians, we we want to trend the hemoglobin A1C. So we have to go to the HIE and just get the numbers and then kind of mentally trend them. But yeah, the data is there. You get that unified view of the patient. Uh, but the technology is ready to go. Uh, yeah. So I will say that certainly we get all of the data directly in our EHR for the physician. So they're not going out of the EHR to see that data from the HIE. And some of the folks in the practices have electronic medical records vendors that don't support that level of integration, mm -hmm. but many of them do. And increasingly they do even vendors like Athena health. And a lot of the ones you see in even smaller practices have that capability. If you set it up. Very nice. Very nice. Okay, next question here that I get. Oh, this one. I get this. There's only a handful of them here, but this doctor, he likes his flip phone. He's not giving it up. Yes, it came from 1995, and he just keeps repairing it and loves that thing. Why do he's saying, why do I have to get a new phone? I, this two-factor authentication thing to e-prescribe, it's annoying. I just want my flip phone. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, so that one is completely outside of the control of anything that anybody in the health system can do, uh, despite how much they may or may not agree with what that physician has to say, because it's just black and white in the regulations. It's got to be a two-factor authentication platform that meets certain requirements, and that unfortunately does require a smartphone in almost all cases. So unfortunately, I don't think that the typical CIO or CMIO is going to be able to have the kind of clout to change those regulations. So we do just need to kind of go along with it. But what I'll say is that it is super convenient. So when we were working on our opioid stewardship program, where our organization set, like many organizations, we set this goal of reducing our prescribing by 50% at the beginning of uh, when the healthcare industry as a whole kind of recognized that we had this overprescribing problem and we hit that. But when we were in the process of, of working through the various initiatives, one of the big complaints we heard was that we're afraid that if we reduce the total pills that we're prescribing per patient, we'll get more callbacks for second prescriptions or refills. And one of the ways that we were able to really make people a lot more comfortable with what they were doing. And even if they did get those calls, which by the way, it turns out that they didn't. And there's interesting, very interesting studies on that. Mm -hmm. But the way that we made them more comfortable 
was by showing them how convenient it actually is to do it when you're on the two-factor authentication e-prescribing for a controlled substances platform. So do you have or did you ever institute a mandatory smartphone policy where you're at? We have not. So I guess a provider could choose to not participate in e-prescribing of controlled substances. Um, and they can certainly choose to come into the office if there's anything that they need to do emergently rather than being able to log in from home. So those are, of course, options. But I, I don't know of any holdouts who really dug in their heels and said there's no way they're going to upgrade to a smartphone. I think our bigger controversy was around mobile device management and asking folks to say, look, if you want to get your email or do certain other convenient things on your phone, you're going to have to enroll in mobile device management or carry two phones or whatever it may be. Um, and a lot of folks said, no way I'm putting that company software on here. Everybody's going to spy on us, which is interesting to see the, the, the software that they had on the phone that actually may have been spying on them, but that's neither here nor there. That was a harder hurdle where people said, I'm not willing to enroll in mobile device management uh, due to a lack of trust of the organization as a whole and protecting the privacy of what was on their personal phone. But even that over time, I think people, we were able to prove to people that that was absolutely not what we're interested in and show them the reasoning behind it. And certainly the mandates from our board of trustees that it was something that we absolutely needed to do as a 21st century organization. Yeah, I think people don't realize that they probably have more to be concerned about with uh, large tech companies that have where your apps on the on there. I, I don't know. My kids are TikToking all over the place. Who knows where that stuff ends up? Yeah. So we don't mandate a stethoscope, but gee, look kind of silly walking into the hospital without one if you're an internist. Uh, so it's part of the tools we use today. So I'm leaning towards. I I hate to have to go to a policy. Uh, but then I get the, well, then the hospital has to pay for my phone. I'm like, oh, really? So I'm trying to take steps on this one. All right, next one here. All right, this doctor comes to me and says that I hate having to take the online learning module for email security. I'm a doctor. I don't need to worry about that stuff. Can I skip that module? Is email really a threat? It is actually. So we measure this on a monthly basis across our whole organization. And we say, okay, when these emails come in that are phishing and trying to get you to click on stuff or give up your password, first of all, who's clicking? And then once we know that information, we educate them and help them learn how to spot those emails in the future. But also we benchmark ourselves to say what percentage of people are clicking because the truth is, when you pick up the newspaper or get that email from Becker's hospital review or whatever it is, and you see that headline practically every day saying the whole hospital's down and has been for the last three days and everybody's running around scrambling because their processes don't work without any of their computer systems and they're working on unlocking their data that's been hijacked by ransomware. Almost every time you read one of those headlines, it's because somebody clicked on an email that they shouldn't have. So it's real. It really can completely take down your hospital. And it's such a, a low 
it's such a low technology threat. Anybody can trick you into having an email thread that looks really legitimate and has that link, but we need to be diligent. And I think just getting that point across, it, it's just so important. So we send it out every month. Every month we send out a test and people have started saying, oh, this is another one of those IT tests to see if I if they can trick me. But what we try to remind everybody of uh, every time we do it is every single test that we send, every uh, phishing email test is just a copy and paste of a real threat that we were that we received from somebody trying to hack our system. So we never ever send any of them that we just made up. They all are just a copy and paste of a real threat that came in and we caught it. And now we're just testing it out to see if we can use it as an educational opportunity. Hmm. That's, so is it best practice to be testing every month? Is that where we should be at as an organization? I think that monthly is becoming more common. Certainly if you look at a lot of the cybersecurity maturity models, they'll ask, are you testing once a year, never, uh, quarterly? And then monthly is kind of typically seen as one of the top tier of maturity or, or what have, but uh, it really varies from organization to organization. You want to, you don't want to make people too annoyed with the tests, but at the same time, having regular data that you can use to continuously improve is also what we found to be valuable. My CISO got me the other day. I'm really angry at him. He was so sneaky. So, <laughs> like, ooh, that's so wrong. He targeted yeah. me, I think. Anyway, <laughs> I'll get him back. So, all right, here's another one for you. So, I'm in a group partnership here, and we take our patient list. So, for the weekend, you can see what patients are in the hospital. We just put that list up on, on Google, on a Google Doc. And we just share information on the Google Docs. Is, that sounds like it's fine. And these are employed providers. Any concerns with that? Yeah, that's a tricky one because it seems so harmless, right? You can put that in the Google Doc and it'll be there. Your team can share it. It's harmless. And I, it's probably, you might even be able to keep it secure, but you don't have a business associate agreement with Google, or maybe your organization does, but you probably wouldn't know that without going through an official process of getting that sanctioned as the way that you share the data and replace Google with any one of a million vendors. It could be Dropbox. It could be OneDrive. It could be, uh, we just slack the data back and forth. I mean, there's a million ways that this can be, but the requirements are clear that you do have to have a business associate agreement with the company that's storing that data because wherever the data is, there could be a breach. And when, and if a breach happens, you need to have certain assurances that that company is going to treat it the right way. So for instance, if let's say, heaven forbid, there was some sort of a malpractice thing that started happening and you just, an attorney came and said, well, we need to collect your emails. And in that email, there's a reference to all this information that you stored in the Google doc. Well, now your uh, patient has not only the fact, well, whatever claim that they have about malpractice, they've got that, which got the ball rolling, but now their attorney says, well, look, this doctor's storing your data in an unsecure manner, which violates HIPAA. And that's a whole separate issue. And now you're really in a, 
a rough spot that you don't want to be in. So I always try to tell people, I, I'm not trying to keep you from sharing your data conveniently. It's really not my, I have no interest in that at all. But you and I both don't want to be in a situation of, of explaining why we're storing our data or your data in a way that's not compliant with HIPAA and has no business associate agreements and have the Office of Civil Rights knocking when they just don't need to be if we follow company policy. So that's the most relevant example that I try to give people about why this is really, really not a good idea because there's so many other ways that you could do it in your EMR or through other sanctioned methods where you do have a BAA and reaching out to your IT team to figure out what are the best ways to do that and to complain to them if you don't have a good way to do that so they can fix it. That's really the way to do it, not to kind of do your own thing. I see a lot of do your own thing. I think the cloud has enabled that. It's so hard. I think it's impossible really to police it. I guess you could maybe monitor outbound traffic to Dropbox and some of the more common ones, but the, the, ability to understand who's doing what out there in an organization, once it gets over a single hospital size, it gets pretty tough, I would imagine, to corral that. Do you feel that you have a good finger on the pulse of what's going on out there, or is it the Wild West and docs just do what they want or nurses or whatever? It's not the Wild West. We do a lot of education. So what's not the first time that I threw out that hypothetical about the case, whatever it may be, where an attorney's asking for your emails and there's this reference to this other thing that they weren't even looking for. Uh, So we've educated folks on that. We've also gone to some pretty extreme measures of completely blocking certain domains for tools that people are trying to use by going around the official processes. So we had one vendor It's just like a forms engine and people wanted to use that in certain ways. And it got to the point where we were just too concerned that something might, people might break the rules and we blocked that forms vendor completely just because uh, we weren't able to get our hands around it. So it's nowhere near the wild west, but it's really, really hard to keep control of it. Dave, this has been an awesome conversation. I want to make sure I keep you to the time that we said we would. Just real practical advice for CMIOs. That's what I always try to do with this show is making sure someone can walk away with a tidbit or two because these are not, I'm sure you've heard these questions before. I take it. These were not hard for you to come up with answers, right? (laughs) I've heard them all. Yep. Yeah, I figured. So if people want to reach out and connect to you, particularly if you get a new analytics thing uh, up and going here, a new, a new consulting firm, how should people find you? LinkedIn is probably the best way to get a hold of me. I, I've been pretty active on LinkedIn over the, over the years, and there's never been a time where I go too much longer than a week or two without checking in. So definitely just uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm Dave Lair, L-E-H-R, and I'm pretty easy to find there. Fantastic. Thank you for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn, send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode.